All right, let's get the context. Sometimes it's helpful to do this. If you flip back in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 1, you put your finger there, and then you flip forward to chapter 10, verse 42, which is really the end of chapter 10. This is, in John's crafting of the gospel, a very important section. And the theme of that section, I like to know these things, and I think it's helpful for you in your Bible reading if you know these things. There's a theme that governs this entire section of which this text we just read is a part. The theme is this, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what John's been telling us over and over again, that Jesus really is the Son of God, the Messiah. He came from the Father, we just read about that, right? But, he, but what's being highlighted here in this section is the rejection that he's experiencing. So this whole section, chapter 5 all the way to chapter 11, is Jesus is the Son of God. He's rejected by his people, but he continues to offer life. He continues to offer life. When we get to the end of chapter 10, we will be through part one of John's gospel, and then we'll turn our attention to the second part of John's gospel. Now, you noticed in the, the beginning, the first verse of the section I just read, that it says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, and that again is interesting. It probably goes back to where Dave uh, left us last when he was preaching through uh, John's gospel. And it's probably at the end of verse 39. That's where Jesus was teaching there on the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then we got some interaction after he taught. There was some division among the people. And then you'll remember when I preached on chapter 8 verses 2 through 11, there's questions about whether that actually belongs in John's gospel. We believe it's apostolic. We believe that it's part of the scriptural testimony. Maybe Luke, maybe John, maybe somewhere else. Um, listen to the sermon if you want to hear a better explanation of that. But this again, when he says again, is in reference to where we left off. Jesus teaching the Feast of the Tabernacles. Again, Jesus spoke to them. So again, Jesus is speaking. And what he says is, I am the light of the world. That's the second of seven I am statements that John shows us. Do you, does anybody, this would really do my heart a great encouragement if anybody could remember the first I am statement, we've hit it already because we're hitting the second, so we had to have passed through the first. Does anybody remember the first I am statement? I'm going to close my eyes, and I hope that someone will shout it out. The bread of life. I am the bread of life. What does that mean? Jesus comes to satisfy us eternally. He satisfies our hunger. He satisfies our thirst. Today, we get the second I am statement. I am the light of the world. He makes this cosmic claim. But that statement falls flat 
until we get a feel for this passage. To, to appreciate the drama and the significance of what Jesus said in the context that he said it. Uh, one man's commentary really helped me with this, and I'm going to draw on that right now. The context is Jesus speaking in the temple. Now, he was speaking during this feast of the tabernacles. So in 8 verse 20, we're told where the scene actually occurs. Did you catch that? It occurred in the treasury. It occurred in the treasury, or more technically, the court of women. This is where this teaching occurred. That court was one of the busiest sections of the temple. And at one side of it, there was this colonnade with, the, with 13 massive treasure chests that were shaped in the shape of upside-down trumpets, shafars. They were all there, and they were designated as we, we use, ours isn't shaped like a shafar. If you want to put your money in the offering basket, we've got a little box back there. We used to pass baskets. Now we've got a little box, or you can give online. They put their money in these treasury boxes. They were narrow at the top, rounded out at the bottom. According to one researcher, scholar, the trumpets pr promoted a program of designated giving. And they were labeled. The first two trumpets were for half shekels, which every Jew had to pay for the upkeep of the temple. So that's where they put that money in. The second two trumpets were for offerings of the pigeons, for rites of purification. The fifth trumpet was where they put the offering for wood. So they contributed so that there would be wood for the sacrifices. The sixth trumpet was for the incense that they needed. The seventh was for the upkeep of the golden vessels. Then, if they had any money left, the remaining six trumpets were for love offerings. So you get the sense of the place. It was a heavily traveled place. It was the perfect place for what the Lord wanted to do. He wanted to, at that moment, in the treasury, on the day subsequent to the festival, he was going to make a statement. He made one when, they were, when the priest was pouring out the water. He said, I am like living water. I'm eternal water, living water that will satisfy your thirst eternally. But in the center of this treasury, you guys picturing it, trying to picture it in your mind, there are these four great torches that went up. Huge torches. Some accounts say that the torches were as high as the walls in the temple. And at the top were these great bowls that held about 65 liters of oil. So you know what a two-liter soda bottle looks like. The oil was what they lit to keep those lamps burning. Now just imagine for a moment if you were a priest, you think pastors got it easy. Imagine if you had to get the oil up into that bowl. A gallon of milk weighs six pounds. 
So I'm sure they were taking it up little bits at a time. But imagine climbing to the top and pouring that oil in. But that oil created a massive torch. And they were lit when they were celebrating in the Feast of Tabernacles. They were like these huge wicks that they would light and the great flames would leap out from these torches and they would have a celebration where there was singing and dancing. And the torches not only lit up the temple area, they actually lit up Jerusalem. You could see them. You could see these great and massive lights. It was a spectacular moment in Jewish history. And it's at that moment when those torches got lit, when all of Jerusalem knew what was happening, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Gives it a little bit more flavor, right? I am the light of the world. Now, I really worked on this sermon, but it was a difficult one, and there's a lot of ways to tackle this text. Have you ever listened to two different preachers preach the same text? Now, there's a sense in which they ought to be hovering around the main meaning. If you listen to a preacher preach the text and it doesn't like resemble what you're reading in your Bible, that's bad preaching. But I could preach this same sermon in a year's time and it would come out different. It would have a different flavor, even though the meaning of the text would be the same. But this is a hard one because what happens here is Jesus makes this incredible claim. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then after he makes that claim, there's really no more talk about him being the light of the world or, or uh, not walking in darkness and having the light of life. What the rest of it is, is an argument, right? With who? With whom? The Pharisees. He gets into an argument and he basically spends his time justifying the claim that he just made. He gives them proof for why he's the light of the world, and they argue with him over that. What I'm going to focus on this morning is the claims of Jesus, the, the, the claims that he makes in verse 12, and what their implications are for us. That's how I'm going to tackle this. And what is happening in the Gospel of John, this is happening for me, and I'm so grateful for it. John is presenting for us the real Jesus. Not a Jesus of our own making, which we all have. We, we picture Jesus to be what we want him to be. But John is giving us the real Jesus. And I feel like what's happening for me, and I've, I've been following Jesus for a while, and I've been studying God's word for a while. And I've been preaching God's word for a while. But I feel like what is happening for me is I am getting a more vivid picture, a more, uh, more depth, more dimension of who Jesus is. 
It's almost like, you remember coloring books. You know what a coloring book is. Some of the kids are probably using them right now. You can, get a, you can imagine a picture of Jesus in a coloring book. Just a simple, one-line drawing. And that being what you know of Jesus. And the gospel, I feel like the gospel of John is, is creating more nuance, more depth. And the result is an increasing love for Jesus, an increasing devotion to Jesus, an increasing desire for communion with Jesus. I hope that's happening for you. God wants that to happen today as we seek to understand who Jesus is. He's the light of the world. So we're going to look at some, his claim, and we're going to look at it this way. So three points if you're a note taker. We're going to look, and our Kent Hughes really helped me with this. We're going to look at what Christ claims. We're going to look at what Christ claims for his followers. So those who accept his claims, right? And then we're going to look at what Christ claims for those who reject his claims. Let's look at what Christ claims. What does he claim? It's right, it's right there. What did he claim about himself? Let's say it together. I am the light of the world. Say it again. I am the light of the world. That's his claim. That's what Christ claims. It's not a trick question. Studying your Bible is not rocket science. <laughs> what did he claim? He claimed that he's the light of the world. The lights that I just described that lit up the temple would have been descriptive of something referred to in the Old Testament as the Shekinah glory. That's what they sought to symbolize. If you know your Old Testament, and if you don't, keep listening. You'll you'll learn some things today. You You don't need to know your Old Testament to get something from this sermon. But Jesus is saying to everyone, when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, do you remember that pillar that came between the Egyptians and you when I delivered you out of slavery? Do you remember that pillar? And you just nod your head if you remember the pillar. There there was this, this pillar that came between the Egyptians near the Red Sea and the people of God. The pillar, he's saying, do you remember that pillar? It protected you. And it led you during your wilderness wanderings. Do you remember that pillar? Do you remember the light of that pillar? I am that light. That's what he's saying. I am that glory. Not I am like it. I'm like that glory. I am that glory. I am the glory of God. I am the light of the world. Jesus is doing it again. He's been doing it all along in John's gospel. It's what gets him in trouble with the religious elite. He's saying, I am God. He's claiming to be God. When he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying he is God. Now, when the cloud led Israel through the wilderness, there was always a heart of fire that lit it at night. That was how they followed along at night. But that light of fire was hidden during the day. It was described as a pillar of cloud during the day. When Jesus came, church, when Jesus came into the world, light of the world, you stepped down into darkness. When he came, he sheathed his glory. 
Jesus is is so bright that we could not exist in the brilliance of his glory. So what does he have to do in order to come down and enter into darkness and enter into our sin and enter into this world that he might be a savior? He has to shield his glory so that we could look at him. Now, there are a lot, and I would encourage you to do this. I'm going to do it for you right now, but you can do this. When the the scriptures refer to light, you should do what I would refer to as a biblical theology of light. What is a biblical theology of light? It just means you go through your Bible, start in Genesis, and start making note of every time the Bible uses the language of light and start to learn what you can learn from that. Now, that'll be a big study if you actually do that. But you can get some help. You can look up resources where theologians and and pastors and scholars have done that work. Let me just give you a few. John told us in the beginning of his gospel, look at this, John 1. John 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's just coming back to that idea. He's already said this, but now he's coming back to it. I just referenced the glory, the very presence of God in the cloud led the people to the promised land. That's Exodus chapter 13. So you can read that whole story. The glory of the very presence of God protected his people from those who wanted to destroy them. That's Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites were actually trained. They were trained to worship God. They were trained to sing to the Lord. And one of the things they sang was Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Have you ever sang that to the Lord? Has the Lord become your light? Is he your light and your salvation? Did you once walk in darkness and now you walk in the light of life? Praise him. The scripture says that the word of God is like, you learn this in kids' ministry, a light unto my path. It's a light. The word of God actually functions as a light. God's light, the scripture tells us, the prophets told us over and over again that God's light is shed abroad in revelation and in salvation. Light, Psalm 43, 44.3, light is God, Yahweh, in action. Isaiah says that the, he gives a lot of references to light. He says that the servant of the Lord, he's referring to the Messiah, was appointed as a light to the Gentiles to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. The scripture tells us in the end of our Bibles in Revelation that when Jesus comes and returns for his people and he brings heaven on earth, he will dismiss the sun, moon, and stars. He will say, thanks for serving. Your time is up. Why? Because the light of Jesus' glory will light heaven in the place of the sun. Go get your mind around that. Zechariah prophesied that, the, that there, was, there was a promise for all who were in God And I think this promise extends into the New Testament that all who are in Christ will experience 
a continual light on the last day. When you close your eyes in death, what are you hopeful of? Do you sit there as one who will leave this earth and head into the continual light of Christ? Or do you sit, wherever you're sitting, as one who will leave this earth and move into continual, everlasting darkness? That's, that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's been saying it over and over again. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who will live in the continual light of Christ for all eternity and those who will live in eternal darkness. So I, I'm just thinking about this now. If you're in Christ, you have his light right now, but the light is going to be better for you in all eternity. But if you're not in Christ right now, you experience uh, uh, some measure of darkness just from living in this world, but the darkness is going to be way worse. There's hope, though. There's hope for all who would receive Jesus as the light of the world. We'll get to how you can do that and how easy it is. John tells us in verse 14 of chapter 1, we have seen his glory. He said, we have seen his glory. He's referring to an experience called the transfiguration where he and Peter and one of the other disciples saw Jesus transfigured and they actually saw, just for a minute, his true glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Church, we live in a dark world getting darker by the day it seems but I also can say the world has always been dark <laughs> it's always been dark look read your history books But when we live in a dark world, which is what Jesus said, yes, he is the light of the world, but we're still in mortal combat with darkness. Living in this dark world, we need to keep the supreme claim of Jesus before us. I am the light of the world. As we're going through life in darkness, we need to remember that Jesus is the light of the world. He's, and we said this when we were praying this morning, the Sunday morning production team, we were saying that Jesus is the light of the world. He's not just the light of people who are uh, actually interested in this kind of thing. He's not just the light of people who are interested in religion. He's not just the light of Christianity. He's not just the light of America. He's not just the light of the Jews. What does he say, church? He says he's the light of the world. That's his claim. He is the light, church, in every single way. In every way, Jesus is the answer. 
He brings light into our darkness. He brings clarity into our confusion. You may just barely be making it. You may just be stumbling along in your confusion and in your darkness, wondering what life is all about. You may feel, you may be sitting here feeling like you're barely able to take another step. Jesus wants you to know that he is the light of the world. You may feel discouraged. You may feel depressed. You may wonder if you're going to make it. You may feel like you're trapped maybe by decisions that you've made in the past and there's a darkness that hangs over you. It's like a cloud. Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world. Aren't you glad of that, church? You can have this hope. If I described you just a minute ago, you can have hope by clinging to Jesus as the light of the world. Let's keep going. That was what Jesus claims. What does Jesus claim for his followers? Look at verse 12 again, where he made his claim. I am the light of the world. Whoever, here it comes, follows me, that's someone who has received Christ's claims. Whoever follows me will not. So there's something you won't do anymore if you decide to follow Jesus. You won't walk in darkness any longer. He plucks you out of that. And into what? Into his marvelous light. It says, you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. When the Israelites were in the desert and they were following the pillar of cloud by day and the, the pillar of fire by night, at night, the fire lit their way. They would otherwise not have been able to travel at night. We, we can't even, we so take for granted the fact that we just flip the lights on. Man, the power goes out for a minute, we're cursing, we can't get on our Wi-Fi. These people live for centuries without light. You can't move around in darkness without light. I can't get through my garage if, if I need to find a better system. But when we pull into the garage, I used to have my garage door openers are old. They used to light up. You know, now they don't anymore. So the garage that I walk through every day, and I have a, I mean, our garage, you got boys that play sports. There's stuff everywhere. Skateboards. Uh, I mean, they're deadly. You step on one of them in the dark. Certainly for less athletic men than me. You step, that was supposed to be funny. You, you step on a skateboard in the dark and, and that's bad news. You might be facing surgery. In the light, if the light's on, I got no problem navigating. I can get through our garage. But if the light is not on, that's like a, you go slowly and you hope you have your iPhone with you. You got that little trusty light there, right? Where you're going to light your way until you get to the light that's near the door and turn it on. The light. Think about light. When you strike a light into darkness, what happens? There's an illumination immediately. But darkness cannot completely swallow out light, right? Right? You got a little light. You got at least a little light. No matter how dark the night was, when they were under the lit up cloud, there was no stumbling, no confusion, no fear. But that's why God said, when the, when the pillar of fire starts to move, you follow me. 
I don't care what time of night it is. When that goes, because if you don't and you try to walk through the dark without the light, you're going to stumble, you're going to be confused, and you're going to be in fear. Christ provides these kinds of benefits for those who follow him, for those who know him. We can have courage, church. We can have courage living in a dark world. Some of you are without courage right now in a dark world. You're without it. You're fearful. You're anxious. You're angry. And you don't need to be. You can actually trust God to lead us through the darkness of this world. Why? Because he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. The rest of the phrase gives even more hope. I got into it already. We'll have the light of life. Not only will you not walk in darkness, you'll have the light of life. Jesus is saying that not only do we have his light coming into us, but there's this sense in which we become bright reflections of his light to a lost and darkened world. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Church, we are the light of the world. Paul told the Philippians that the world was dark, but that they would shine like stars in the universe. Jamal ended the sermon last week. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It can't be hidden. It can't be hidden. If we are in Christ, his light is going out from us. Let me read a C.S. Lewis quote. Always good. Nature is mortal. We shall outlive her. Outlive her. It sounded like outliver. When all the suns and nebulae have passed away, each one of you, if you're in Christ, will still be alive. Nature is only the image, the symbol, but it's a symbol Scripture invites me to use. We are summoned to pass through nature beyond her to the splendor which she fully reflects. In other words, if you are sitting next to someone who is in Christ, what they're going to become would scare you badly if you could see it. The light that is going to emanate forth from us as Christians is glorious. What will it be? I don't know. Like 50-watt light bulb? 100-watt light bulb? 200 We'll be like a bunch of fireflies up in heaven. Somehow, church, somehow, friends, we are going to enter into the fame and approval of God. You and me. And we will be glorious beings far beyond all of our imagination. We know. John tells us in another letter that he wrote in 1 John. He says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So whatever Jesus is, you're going to be like him. Praise him, church. Can you believe this? This is beyond our imagination. Whatever we know that when he appears, we're going to be like him and we shall see him as he is. Not only the light of Christ on us, but we have it in us. He gives us light to light our path, and the light comes into us so that it can go out to others. 
There's people sitting in here right now that are now in the light of Christ because the light of Christ that was shining from you actually went out to them and now they're walking in the light of life. Who wants more of that? We got, we've been baptizing, we've never done this as a church. We baptized people in April, we baptized people in May, now we're going to baptize, I think, five more people on June 13th, so next Sunday. What's going on? What's going on is that Jesus is the light of the world, and his light is filling you as believers, and it's like a city on a hill, and it's shining, and people who are lost in darkness are actually attracted to the light like moths. So that's what Christ claims for his followers. Let's see what he claims for those who reject his claims. We end on a sober note. Sadly, not all that heard his claims thought that they were wonderful. You guys are clapping, many of you. There's a sense in which you find these claims to be wonderful. Some people don't find these claims to be wonderful. What's so amazing is that it was the Bible teachers of the day. It was the pastors of the day. It was those who had memorized huge sections of the Old Testament that reject his claims. No, I'm not going to say it. Let me just get through this point. They hung their rejection of Jesus on a technicality. Who, who gives you the right to say these things? What authority? We've already been, go listen to the message, can I get a witness? This is what Jesus was doing. He was bearing witness. Jesus says, I got two witnesses. Me and the Father. That's all I need. Whose Father, they say. Who's your father? Where's your father? Here's the point. We see here another reality. When Jesus is loved and followed and trusted, he becomes light. When Jesus is neglected or rejected, he becomes darkness. Light to some darkness to many. Just like the pillar of cloud between the armies of Egypt and Israel, darkness to one side, light to the other. The very light of Christ, church, can become darkness for some. Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy and all the pornography that that represents. You know he's raised by a pastor. You know that? Light to some. Darkness to others. Joseph Stalin. If you don't know much about him, let me just say this. Bad guy. Do you know he trained for the priesthood? Light to some, darkness to others. Somebody referenced recently John Piper's son. You can go read some of the things that he's saying. It's, it's terrible. 
to read. He's got a huge Twitter and TikTok following just tearing down the claims of Christ. His father is one of the most prolific, passionate pastors and preachers of the gospel in the world today. Light to some, darkness to others. What say you? Is Jesus the light of your world? Or is he darkness to you? Here's the thing. If you want knowledge of God, you can only find it through Jesus. It's the only way you're going to find it. So what is the ultimate necessity of life? The ultimate necessity of life. What is it? Having the light of life. Having the light of Christ. There's no concern more crucial. There's no need you have that's more urgent. There's no issue in life more important. Without the light of life, we will walk into eternal darkness. This is the warning. This is the sober warning for everyone who rejects Christ's claims. Look at what it says in verse 24. Verse 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. There's going to be a time of separation at death. We will either die and go to be with Christ, or we will die and pass into eternal darkness. Do you ever read? It's good. In America, we hate to think about death. We hate it. We have anesthetized, I've said it wrong, but something like that, to death. Like we, we, clean, we want to clean it all up. We don't like, other cultures are different about death, the way that they approach death. And we have, we've gotten so good at protecting ourselves from death that we have kind of this, this uh, wrongful idea that we can kind of hold death off. And then we sanitize it when it comes. Death is coming for everyone sitting in this room. It's closer for some than others. So this is the most important question. This is why I say this is a crucial question. See, other people, you walk through graveyards and you'll see tombstones, little tiny tombstones. All these kids and families died. You look, read your history books. See how many kids and families died. Yeah, large families, they lost many of the kids. Death is coming. It doesn't matter how much you dull your sense of that through video games, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, social media, technology, fun, movies, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But it's coming. And when I think about this, when I close my eyes, when they say, Kenny, it's just about over, what is going to go through my mind? What's going to go through your mind? I've read some interesting final words. Thomas Paine, 
one of the great intellectuals among the founders of our country, but he was an infamous unbeliever. His final words are recorded, and he was a man in terror. He said, I would give worlds if I had them that I had not written the Age of Reason. His final words. You want to hear his final sentence? If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. I don't want any of you to die like that. Isaac Watts, do you know him? He's written a lot of the hymns that we sing. This is how I want to die. It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. Why? Because Jesus is the light of his life. He knows where he's headed. Oh, church, walking in the light is a matter of following Jesus. How do we follow Jesus? By faithful submission and obedience. If you're going through hard times, you're confused, there's a good chance you just need to resubmit your life to God. The word follows, when he says follows, is a present participle. It means to continue, to keep on continuing. If you're following Jesus, it's not a once and done. I decided to follow Jesus, but I haven't followed him since. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a continual following. How do we continue? We look up to Jesus. We look outward. We walk continually in the light. We want the light of life. We want to be a light to others. We want to participate in the final glory that awaits us, whatever it may be. Jesus spoke, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Do you have this light? Are you enjoying the peace, the joy, the comfort of walking in the light of Christ? If not, submit to him now. 